Let me um, remind you this week, while I'm thinking about it, that next week we turn our clocks back. So, yeah, grumble, grumble, grumble. Um, so remember that when you come or else, as I said, that just means, what well, you'll show up an hour early. So you'll have a lot of time for fellowship if you, uh, if you forget to do that, but we do. So we get our, we get our hour back uh, next week and we have to get adjusted to very early sun, earlier sunsets, I guess would be the thing. Though we've got family visiting this week. We were having dinner last night in Brandon with um, part of my family on Tony's side and we have some family that are down from Vermont and um, they were talk, commenting how right now up there, and I know some of you, you know, that live in those places up north, I think they said the sun's setting about 4.30 at night. Um, that's obscene is what that is. And I remember that. I went up there a number of years ago for Christmas. Uh, and yeah, it just, that's crazy. I'm too Florida for that. So um, anyway, let me, let me set up our scripture this morning um, a little bit before we get into this text in Matthew. I was watching TV a week or so ago and uh, saw one of the, it was actually one of the newscasts that started to list the schedule and the locations in the Bay Area where you could go to a haunted house with it being Halloween. They were listing the places in Pasco County and Hillsborough County and Pinellas County and Manatee County where you could go to one of these, you know, set up, you know, whether they're haunted houses or haunted mazes or whatever they may be. Uh, basically, where you could pay money to go and to have somebody try to scare you. Uh, you know, that, that's, what, that's what they're for. That's the intention behind them. And, and I just started to think about that. I've never been a, a big fan of haunted houses, or it's just never been a, a big thing for me, so it's not something that I pay a lot of attention to, but I started to think about that kind of an attraction, that kind of, um, basically, desire, which is to go and to, base, to have yourself scared, to pay somebody to, to scare you, and, and why some people enjoy that. Some of you undoubtedly here enjoy that. And, and, and I'm not questioning that because there's scientific... I started to, to kind of go and, and, and research a little bit the, the health benefits of a good scare. And there are actually health benefits of a good scare. And, and if you do that, if you ever watch people coming out of haunted houses or stuff when they've been scared out of their mind, they're usually um, laughing. They might be holding on to somebody. But there's usually laughter and there's usually smiles on people's faces. I mean, it's something that, that we enjoy and we, we might enjoy it in different ways. But the, the, the thing is that when, when you're scared, uh, it releases adrenaline and dopamine uh, into the bloodstream, into the body. And, and it can be a, scientifically speaking, it can be a wonderful high as long as your brain can immediately process that there's no real danger. Okay? That, that's the key there. You have to be scared, but your brain has to almost simultaneously process that this is not a real threat, that nobody's really going to harm you, that, that, that nobody's really out to get you. So, so when those two things work together, you can have that adrenaline rush, that dopamine rush, but your brain can immediately process this is not a real thing to be scared of. 
it can be an enjoyable experience. That's why people will put up with practical jokes. We do it here all the time in the office. We, seriously, if Liz was here, and Lynn can tell you, I make a living out of trying to find ways to scare Liz, who's the administrative assistant. And I may have told you some of these stories. I can't always remember the stories I told, but it wasn't too long ago. It was a few months ago that I was in here on a weekday morning. John was back on the computer, and the building was empty, and Liz was coming down the hall. And so what I did, and I do this in different ways, is I just crouched down at the door so she couldn't see it. And so as soon as she opened it, boom, I pop out, and she wets herself. And it's great. Um, And I've done that. Now, now, to be fair, she's done it back, so it goes back and forth, but I'm preaching and she's not, so I'm telling my side of it. Um, and, and, and I can do that because she's got a good sense of humor about it, and she ends up laughing. Once her brain is immediately processed, it's not a real fear, not a real scare. That, that's, that's what scare does, and we could, we could explore that in a lot of different ways. Scare is a momentary experience. There's benefits to a good scare. But what happens when scare becomes extended? What happens when, whether you want to use the word scare or whether you want to use the word fear, when it's not a momentary reality, when it becomes something that feels much more real um, and much more consuming? Well, then scare turns to worry. Scare to, and there's a lot of words that we could use and interchangeable. Scare turns to worry. And it's not a momentary response to what is. It's an anticipated fear of what might be. And Jesus talks about that. Talks about worry. And so I want to read these words from Matthew 6, 25 through 34. They are profound, but they're not easy. They're not easy for us to, to live. And let's hear what Jesus says to his disciples and to us and to those who heard his words. He said, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Is that, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble, trouble of its own. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would hear your words today, always. But in these moments, speak to, to our hearts, speak to our realities, calm our spirits, and open our hearts to, to hear your challenge, your hope, your promise. This is our prayer in Christ Jesus. 
Amen. So what happens when scare becomes extended? It becomes worry. And worry may seem too mild a word, but I think you understand the truth. You understand the point I'm getting at. And worry comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means to choke. Worry begins to, to choke us. It begins to, to consume us. Proverbs chapter 26 says that worry wears, weighs down the heart. It burdens the heart. It burdens the spirit. It burdens the mind. It burdens the individual. Worry begins to have a powerful impact upon our lives and begins to, to shape the way that we experience life, the way that we, we do life, and it, and it creates kind of a reality in our spirits, an anxious heart. And most of us, I think, have probably been in those places where we know what that feels like. Some of you are in that place right now. You know, we could, we could run through a checklist and ask yourself the question, do I have an anxious heart? Am I, am I burdened by worry? And, and some of those checklists would include things like, are you unable to shut the brain off? You know, to, to get your mind off of whatever it is that's consuming your thoughts or the worry. Can, can, you, can you step away from that? Does it keep you up at night? We've talked about that before. Do you, do you find yourself in those places where you're staring at the ceiling because kind of in conjunction with that, that brain activity? You know, does it begin... Um, to, to steal your joy? Are you unable to enjoy life and experience and friends and relationships? Are you consumed by the, the what-if questions? These become checks of, a, of an anxious heart. These become measuring sticks, if you will, of whether we've allowed worry to, to become a consuming reality for us. We need to hear Jesus' words. Do not worry. That ain't that easy to say. Yeah, okay, thanks Jesus, got it. I just won't. If it was only so easy to do. You know, do not worry. Because Jesus says, who adds one day to their life through worrying? Who accomplishes anything through worrying? I've had these conversations with Ryan and Cassie, our children, before. You know, when they're worried about things. Why? You can't affect it one way or the other. Now, I'm really good at giving them advice. I'm not so good at hearing it myself because I've checked through a lot of those boxes. An anxious heart to, to be worried. How do we begin to confront worry? Because worry really becomes the, the, the mental attention to the fear of the what-ifs. That, that's what happens when worry begins to take over our lives is we become, as I said, scare is a reaction to what has happened, but worry becomes very much an attention to what might happen. And, and we begin to pay attention to those scenarios. We become, become consumed with those possibilities and it begins to rob us of the, of the abundant life that, that God has given to us. So how do we begin to deal with that? I don't know if you're familiar with extreme skiing, if you've ever seen videos of these um, nuts. <laughs> but if you have, this is, this is what happens. If you're an extreme skier, they helicopter you to the top of a mountain, 
Okay, you don't, the, the extreme skiing doesn't involve lifts because there aren't enough people that actually do this. So they helicopter you to the top of a mountain and you basically ski down the mountain with the lone objective of not dying. Okay, that, that's the goal. And, and they, they come down these sheer cliffs, probably you've seen, I mean, just these ridiculous, almost, you know, straight drops. And they ski in and out of tree lines. And it is, it is just, it's, I just can't imagine doing it. I like to ski, but I can't imagine this. And uh, there was a, an interview that I read, just an excerpt of an interview, with a, an extreme skier by the name of Kim Rickleman. Uh, he is a world champion. You become a world champion in extreme skiing by not dying on the way down the mountain. <laughs> and so he, he made it down, so he's a champion. And um, th they asked him a, a question, though, that was actually very profound. They said, um, when you're skiing... He said, how do, you not, how do you not panic when, you're, when you see the trees, when the trees are coming at you at, at obscene speeds? And his response was, I don't look at the trees. I look at the space in between the trees. I don't look at the trees. I don't look at the space in between, or I don't look at the trees. I look at the space in between the trees. And it was a very subtle and simple way of saying that I have a very singular focus. And that singular focus is the places I need to be, not the places I don't need to be. And I started to think about that kind of focus in relationship to worrying. Because again, to, to kind of go back to the, the point I just made, worrying is when we are focused, I think, in the wrong things. We're focused on, if you will, the trees, the obstacles, the dangers, the risks, the what-ifs. We become focused on what might happen. And it begins to cripple us emotionally and spiritually because we spin scenarios. I can tell you that one of the most worried moments of my entire life, and there have been numbers as, as any of us have had, but it was... It was about a decade ago. We were living up in Pasco County. Tony was working as a, a real estate agent at the time. And she had a showing of a house that was out on the water uh, there in, in, in Hudson. And on that day, she, unbeknownst to me, forgot her phone. Now, it's not in and of itself a very big deal. She went out and she, she was showing the house, but what was supposed to be a 30 or 45 minute showing turned into a couple hours because she and the buyers were talking and looking at things. It was all, all good, but I didn't know it. And 30 minutes later, when I expected to hear from her, I didn't hear from her. 45 minutes later, when I expected to hear from her, I didn't hear from her. And so I started calling her and there's no answer. And my mind started to go. I started to see the trees and I started to go to very, very dark and frightening places because I was scared to death. What if? You know, what if? And I don't even want to spin the what ifs I was thinking now because I don't even want to revisit those thoughts. But you can imagine where my mind was going. And by the end of two hours, I was in a near panic because I didn't know where she was. I didn't know the house. I couldn't drive out to check it out. I just knew she was out there and I'm starting to make phone calls and all of a sudden, my phone rings, and it's Tony. And I've never felt quite the same exhilaration of both relief and wanting to strangle her myself. Um, 
because I had allowed my mind to go to a place I had no control. There was nothing I could do. But I started to focus on the wrong places. Now that's an extreme case of what worry begins to do. And here's what Jesus says. And this is the important thing. It accomplishes nothing. It has no, it does no good. In fact, I should say that it does accomplish something, but not good. What it accomplishes is worry begins to hinder relationships because when we're worried about the what ifs, well, what if somebody hurts me? What if they're not the kind of friend I need them to be? What if, um, you know, this relationship doesn't work out, whatever that may be? So it begins to cripple relationships. What if I try something and fail? What if it doesn't work? What if I, I don't accomplish what I want to accomplish? So what ifs begin to keep us from taking risks? And moving forward. What ifs begin to have an impact, but none of them are good? And we become withdrawn. We become brittle in many ways. And Jesus says, what, what good is it? Who adds a single day to their life by, by focusing on the what ifs? Who accomplishes anything by focusing on the what ifs? We need to have our vision readjusted we need to begin to see things differently because we become too consumed on those fears and the reality is at least in my own experiences most often kind of like thankfully that day with Tony those things that we're so afraid of never materialize they, they don't almost never do I think have have the what-ifs that I create in my head actually played out in life. In fact, most of the times, the biggest challenges that I've had to face in life uh, are things I never saw coming. So I couldn't have played what ifs anyway, because I was blindsided by them and had to adjust on the fly. But the what ifs, you know, they, they don't do anything. I can't tell you the times in ministry when, in any church I've been in, but here, where we've tried new things or done new things, and the t I've, I've sat up and I've thought about all the things that you and I say you collectively, that, that somebody may come up and, and be critical of or, or complain about. And I sit there and I will spend hours answering all the made-up questions in my head as to why we're doing this, why this is important, why we felt the Lord's led us this way. All this time I will spend in these fictitious arguments and discussions and debates. And 99.9% .9 of the time, not one person says one of the things that I've created in my head. Just doesn't happen. So we begin to spend a lot of energy, invest a lot of ourselves, lose a lot of sleep on things that we have no control over. We need to see differently. So if we're not gonna focus on the what ifs, what do we focus on? Well, Jesus very pointedly says, focus on faith. Focus on faith. Focus on trust in a God who loves you. That's the whole point that Jesus says are not the birds of the, field, of the air and the, and the lilies of the field clothed and fed. Trust in a God who's promised to be present in your life. Trust in a God who has promised to give you the strength and the presence that he needs. In Isaiah, it's called a perfect peace. And Paul says to us that don't be anxious about anything. He says, but by prayers and petitions, with a thankful heart, present your requests to God, and he will give you the peace that passes all 
understanding, that it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Over and over the scriptures. In fact, most of the time when we find the worry, the word worry in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, there's two words that come before it. You know what those two words are? Do not. Do not. Over and over. Do not be anxious. Do not be worried. Cast your cares upon him. That's what Peter says. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. What Jesus is saying, learn to trust. Learn to trust that you have a heavenly father that loves and cares for you, that is present with you. Now again, you know me, if you've been here long enough, you know this isn't pie in the sky theology. This isn't saying that life doesn't get hard, you won't face challenges, there are not obstacles and and difficulties. This is saying that God is with you in the midst of those. It's a promise of his presence. It's a learning to trust in our heavenly father. I remember when Ryan and Cassie were both toddlers and they were learning how to swim. And, and, and this is true, probably, you've probably had this experience too, but, but I, they'd be standing there at the side of the pool. And, you know, we'd be in the water, maybe it was about waist deep, it might be me or maybe even Tony, and we would get them to jump into our arms, you know, to jump into the water. But I remember that as long as I was there, as long as mom or dad was there, they'd take that jump. But if I stepped away, if I turned my back, if we got away from them where they couldn't reach us, where they couldn't jump into our arms, in those early stages of, of life, they wouldn't do it. They could only make the jump when they had the assurance that they had their father or their mother there to catch them. Jesus says, have assurance that you have a heavenly father that is there to catch you. You have a heavenly father that is there to love you. You have a heavenly father that is promised to be present with you. You don't need to focus on the what ifs, but focus on the faith. Focus on your trust and the fact that God is with you and his strength sustains and guides us. What will be will be but we don't face any of it alone. That's Jesus' promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Too often, we're so focused on the what ifs that we lose sight of faith. We're so focused on what might happen that we forget that who's with us in the presence, in the midst of it. And that's the love and the the strength of our Heavenly Father. And so Paul gives us the, the, the way that we that we live into that, that text in Philippians that I said that that ties so nicely into what Jesus says. He says, present your request to him by prayer and petition. How do we begin to deal with this? Because it's not just wishful thinking. It's easy for me to say, okay, don't focus on the what ifs, focus on the faith, but what's that mean? How do we begin to do that? Well, the, the simple, profound, yet very powerful truth is we do it through prayer. We intentionally take our concerns, our what-ifs, our fears, our anxieties, and we give it to God. And we learn through prayer and through the daily exercise of prayer to let go. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a discipline of daily taking our needs to God and giving them to him and saying, here, Lord, they're yours. I'm going to trust in you at work through me. Here are my prayers and my petitions. I give them to you. And whether that means journaling them, whether that means um, quiet time in prayer, there's, a, there's, there's an endless ways that we can 
we can engage in that discipline, but it has to be a regular daily discipline of starting our days and saying, Lord, here are my worries. Here are my concerns. Name them. Name them. And then give them to God. Because these are not good scares. These kind of scares don't fill us with dopamine and don't pump our adrenaline and we're not laughing when we walk away. They're real, they're ongoing, they can be paralyzing, but they don't have to be. Let go of the what ifs and focus on faith. Take your petitions to God in prayer and trust he's with you. Trust in his presence. Just like children learn to trust in the arms of mom and dad, they're gonna catch him when they jump into the pool. And trust that you have a heavenly father and his arms embrace you. His love surrounds you and his strength sustains you. Let go of those scares. Let go of those worries. Let go of those fears and focus on your faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we bring our, our hearts to you, honestly before you, because we do carry fears and anxieties. We carry the worries of life. Lord, help us to begin to, to let them go, to trust them to you, to focus on our faith, and to know that we have the arms of a heavenly Father who catches us now and always. Help us to let go of the what-ifs, and to keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.